0: This episode of The Flush Podcast is brought to you by Walton's Inc., Aluma Trailers, Onyx Hunt, Nutrisource Pet Foods, and by Chief Upland. Today's episode will be slightly different than normal. Instead of interviewing a guest, I'll be digging into our emails and social media pages to answer questions and cover topics that you, the listener, have sent our way. If you're a bird hunter or just a hunter like me, or if you're a chef or really anybody that likes to make food, then you probably would be interested in products that are sold at Waltons. There are many places that you can buy products to process and prepare your meat. There are not a lot of places that you can buy those products and learn how to use them from experts, Walton's is that place. They have everything, and I mean everything for your cooking and wild game processing needs. Plus, they have the experts on staff to help you learn how to use their products to get the best results. John Tremblay hosts their Meat Gistics podcast, live streams, and live chats, which are interactive learning tools for the meat processing community. If you have questions, John and his team have the answers. From sausage making to smoking, recipes to seasoning and so much more. They've got you covered. Walton's products ship the same day you order. And while they have nearly every brand you'd ever want to purchase, they also have their own line of Walton's grinders, mixers, stuffers, slicers, vacuum sealers, and so much more. In my opinion, they're like the Amazon of the meat processing world. Order The same seasonings and supplies that professionals use from the best name in the wild game industry, Walton's. They have everything but the meat. Welcome to another episode of The Flush Podcast. I'm Travis Frank. I'm your host, Brandon Morton, as always, produces this program. Today's episode, as I mentioned on the top of the show, will be a little bit different than normal. Typically, I like to have a guest and we dig into specific topics, but, well, COVID. (laughs) We'll just call it COVID because I've had guests lined up this week and they've been, uh, unfortunately... Uh, had to take a, not a break, but uh, we'll we'll have them as a guest in the near future, but right now we're just hoping and praying that they recover quickly and that their symptoms remain minor, Uh, but they do have COVID. So uh, I decided rather than not put out an episode this week, uh, I would answer a lot of your questions. We get a lot of uh, feedback Throughout the course of the year, I try to save a lot of the emails that come in. Um, once in a while, we'll solicit on our social media pages, listener questions or comments or uh, you know topics that you want to hear us cover. So I have a long, long, long list of different topics. We'll see how many I get into before I lose my voice. I apologize that you're going to have to listen to me a lot more than normal today but I'll do my best to entertain, hopefully educate a little bit. And as always, uh, I'm not perfect. I don't know everything. I don't pretend to know everything, but I will answer the questions with my own personal experience. And hopefully it gives you something that will help you with your dogs on future trips, find a few more birds. These of course are all bird hunting questions and they're coming from you, our listeners. So thank you, Thank you very much for, well, being a listener, following our TV shows, watching, um, and then interacting with us because it makes us so much more fun to know that you care, uh, that these are things that matter to you, and that uh, we can all learn from each other and with each other. So um, I'm just going to go down the list here of questions, and I'll answer as best as I possibly can. First question, I love when I get these kind of questions. Oh, we get them all the time, but I I make sure to include them. Rick Sims asks, How much film is cut from filming all of Ron Shara's missed shots? <laughs> oh, there's a lot. There is a lot. Uh, I'm just kidding. We all miss. Uh, Ron misses plenty, uh, but he also hits a lot of birds. Ron's a pretty darn good shot. I give him a lot of grief because... We're friends, and that's what friends do. Um, but with that being said, on a typical show, when we're in the field producing, we, we're usually out there for three days, sometimes more, sometimes less. It, it really depends. And we'll come back with hours and hours, sometimes six, seven, eight hours of footage. We've been producing bird hunting television now for like, oh gosh, 15, 17 years. I'm not even sure. Uh so a lot of our camera men are pretty you know like they know what shots they want to get certainly we we're just trying to capture everything in real time as it's happening um but they don't run the camera all day you know if we're out in the field for 8 9 hours um you know they're not coming back with 8 9 hours of footage each day they're they're turning the button on uh you know and recording specific moments that they want to capture A lot of our hunts, we come back with six, seven, eight hours of footage. We whittle that down into a story, a script for that editor to work on that ends up being a little more than 20 minutes of content. So in the grand scheme of our television shows, we spend a lot of time out there in the field and come back and put together what we hope is the best 20 minutes of content that we can take out of every episode. Thanks for the question, Rick. Hunter Meecham asks, The R3 movement. What type of hunting is the best to introduce a newbie? Upland, deer hunting, something in between. Do you bring someone young or old? What are the biggest barriers to entry? How do you keep them coming back and not have a one-hit wonder? As a person that got into hunting later in life via pheasant hunting, it's something that I think about often, and I'd love to hear you discuss. Well... <clears throat> There is no right or wrong way to introduce somebody to hunting. Uh, certainly, upland hunting is a great, great way to introduce someone to hunting because, unlike deer hunting, when you're upland hunting, you're able to talk. Um, you know, and a lot of people will say you shouldn't talk in the field. Some people don't care, but you can strategize together. You can all communicate while you're hunting throughout the day and try to uh, explain what's happening. Regardless of what you are hunting for, whether it's deer or turkey, um, there should be no age restriction on somebody that you would bring along with you into the field. That's my personal opinion. And I say that because I have three young kids and they've been coming with me into the field since they were three. I have also taken out adults that have never hunted before that are in their 30s and 40s. Um, Truthfully, um, and we've talked about this a lot on this show over the last year or two and however long we've been doing this. I I personally believe the best way to help somebody uh, fall in love with hunting, that want to do it again, is just to bring them with for the whole experience. I know a lot of people, they want to make sure it's a great hunt. They're gonna have, you know, a lot of birds. That that doesn't necessarily guarantee success in that in that first time hunter wanting to come back. Sometimes a failed hunt can be more successful. So I would say, you know, the planning process telling them, you know, when are we going to go? Where are we going to go? Work through, look at Onyx maps together and say, here's where we're going to go and here's why. You want to get them thinking about the process and then they see it and then they experience it and they fail and probably fail again and probably fail again and that bird could get up 200 yards in front of them and that's okay. And if they do get one, that's great too. You know, there's not... There's not a direct, we don't have just this, here's the recipe, do this, 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 and this. And that's probably why we're where we are today with, with Hunter numbers dropping around the country. Certainly, COVID has had an impact. There's more people in the field now. More people seem to be interested in going out. And that's great. So I just think the whole process, start to finish, include them in, invite them in, take them out there. If you are successful, then prepare that wild game together and, you know, let them be a part of that too. And then when they taste it, there's something so rewarding about going out on an adventure and harvesting your own protein and cooking it up and enjoying it together. It's the whole thing. So include somebody new in the whole thing. If it's turkey hunting, turkey hunting is great. You get to sit, you can sit in a blind with somebody right next to them and whisper in their ear and, and help them. And I've done that too, and it's a lot of fun, my kids and other adults. It's great. There's no bad way to introduce somebody to the field or hunting. Just teach them the respect for the animal, the proper way to do it, you know, to practice shooting, whether it's a bow and arrow, whether it's a shotgun, whether it's a rifle. Practice with them and just let them be a sponge and take it all in. I hope that is information that's helpful. I just I just can't get over the importance of bringing people right alongside of you. And it might be for a season. And, you you know, some people say, well, I want to have a huge effect. I want to have a big effect on a lot of people. One person at a time can have a huge effect. That person helps the next person, helps the next person. Think of it this way. If every one of us introduced one, just one, new hunter to the field this season, next season, whatever it might be, we would double the amount of hunters in America in one year. We would double the amount in another year. So, one has a big effect. Scott Widden asks, what bird dogs do you want to hunt over that you have never hunted with? Wow. Um my answer to that I don't know <laughs> I've hunted with a lot of different breeds a lot of different bird dogs I I love them all there's not one that I have hunted with that I would say that's a terrible dog I think a lot of dogs are really um, as good as they are allowed to be and when I say that I mean, the opportunities that they're given really help to create a dog and the amount of birds that they see and the time spent with their owners really help shape them and i've you know i've hunted with a lot of great breeds and i love that they're all different so i guess my my answer to that would be the next one and i don't know what that one is yet let's see josh kim Kimenao asks, "What is each flush host idea for introducing a pup to the upland fields? What techniques do you use for control, monitoring, etc?" Well, since I'm the only flush host here, I will just give you my personal opinion, and when it comes to dogs, boy, there's a lot of opinions out there. And I think that's why a lot of people can be intimidated by training their own dog. They're unsure can they do it? The answer to that is yes, you can. Uh, there are a lot of ways to do it, um, and a lot of ways work. And it's different for each person. But what I've learned is that um, I've, been, I've been fortunate. I, I use, <clears throat> with my dog, I use the Hunt Smith Silent Command training system. And the reason I use that is because my bird dog training mentor, George Lyle, uh, taught me it. And I saw how well behaved his dogs were in the field and how well they hunted, and I wanted that. I had a confidence in tra- in that training method uh, based on what I had seen. And so I went all in with it. And I didn't want to I didn't want to try to do several different training methods because I think if you try to be good at a bunch of things, you end up being not really that good at anything. So I just chose that method, and I stuck with it, and it's worked well for me. So um, I would recommend that. Um, I do have a pointing breed dog, so that um, that method works very, very well for, for pointing breed, but it also works well for, for flushing breeds. I, I have the, the Garmin GPS uh, Collar. And so that always stays on. And depending on where we're hunting um, and the type of terrain, that really dictates how far I'm going to let my dog Daisy run. I mean, if it's really short grass and big rolling country without a lot of cover and I can see her, I've got no problem letting her go three, 400 yards out. Sometimes I want her to stay within 30 yards. And so by the training method that I've used, the Huntsmith training method essentially uh, what I'm doing is I'm giving her uh, a stop command through the GPS, and it, it's, it's a process that we've learned from start to finish. It didn't start with the GPS caller. It worked, we worked our way up to that by creating point of contact. Now, that point of contact tells her, you know, if I apply constant pressure, that's stop. And the, the, the pressure that I'm giving her is so light, I've put it on myself and there are many times when I put that collar on and I've hit the button and I'm like, I just don't feel it. I put it on her and she's like, oh, you know, she, she feels that. So it's a light pressure. She stops, tap, tap again on the collar and she could be 300 yards out. She feels that tap, tap. She turns. She knows that we are to hunt together. Let's go together. And tap, 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 tap. She's to come all the way back. Not stop 50 feet in front of me all the way back. So that's how we communicate. I don't have to say one single word to that dog in the field, which I love because I don't want to have a hoarse voice at the end of the day yelling at my dog. I hunt a lot of wild birds on public land. They've heard a lot of other hunters yelling at their dogs and they know what to do. So if I can sneak in there quietly and my dog can pin a bird down, I end up up with more birds in my game bag at the end of the day. So I think that's a long-winded answer. Um, I would also I would also say too that you know there people go back and forth about you know taking a dog to a hunting preserve and releasing birds and planting birds and and re, you know introducing them to a bird that way. There's a lot of different ways that you can introduce a dog to a bird for the first time. A puppy. Um, but whichever way you go, um, you know, research it, find something that you trust, talk to somebody like I talked to George, I trust him. He's been, a, he's trained dogs for more than 30 years. So he's my mentor. I go to him, find somebody if you can, that you trust that you've seen their dogs, you know that they know what they're talking about. Maybe it's another dog trainer and, and seek their advice and then just trust the process and know that that process will take time, whichever training method you choose. Um, and then have that, that experience with birds be fun, something that they're excited about. Keep them wanting more. Keep them engaged in it. Um, ultimately, there's no, there's no substitute. And I think most people will agree with me. There's no substitute for a dog's ability to learn than wild birds. When you take a dog into a field, that's why I love going to the Dakotas so much, North Dakota, South Dakota, my dog might have hundreds of contacts with a bird over the course of a couple of days, and that in itself will teach a dog so much better than anything that you can do. Beyond the obedience and building a solid training foundation with your dog, wild birds will grow your puppy more than anything else out there. Uh, Dan Mulcahy, I'm sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly, I think you should do an episode without dogs to document how mean my dad was for using his kids as human flushers. Well, Dan, I have actually been trying to produce a TV show out in California. I had a guest on, uh, Jorge was his name, uh, gosh, over a year ago now, and he hunts quail without dogs. He does not have a dog. I've been wanting to go film an episode with him. Um, I spent many years hunting without a dog. My parents did not allow me to have a dog when I was young, but they did allow me to hunt. And when I went up north, I did a lot of grouse hunting without a dog. Grouse, you know, if you walk trails, you can see them. They come out on trails. Um, But they also can be harvested just like pheasants. I shot a lot of pheasants too without a dog early in my years. Once you know the cover that they tend to hold in. If you walk slow enough, there are times when you're just going to get random flushes. Um, (laughs) So I apologize that you were the uh, flusher uh, when your dad brought you hunting, but I'm sure that somehow benefited you, and we'll see. Maybe we'll do an episode in the future without dogs, human flushers. Ah, uh, Patrick Van Hove asks, "What is your favorite state to hunt grouse in?" Well, that's a uh, that's a tough one to answer because there are many grouse species, and well, let's see, rough grouse. I'm I'm a little partial to Minnesota. Um, it seems like every time I sneak away, whether it's with my kids or just by myself or with some buddies. We do really, really well. There are certain parts of Minnesota that have a lot of birds, um, and you can find areas on public land where the pressure is so minimal that you can really have excellent dog work if if that's what you're after. You can get numbers of birds. You know, I did a hunt. We filmed a hunt up in Ontario out of a base camp on Lake of the Woods, and the grouse up there don't know what humans are. Uh, they don't know that we should be danger. <clears throat> they don't associate us with danger cause they don't, they don't see a lot of humans. So that's a different type of hunt altogether. Uh, sharp grouse, boy, it's hard to beat. Let's see. Western Northwest, North Dakota, Eastern Montana. I've hunted Sharptails there a couple of times. Um, sage grouse, you know, you're looking at Wyoming, uh, yeah, there's, there are a lot of different grouse species, so I can't answer that with one definitive answer. Uh, it depends on the grouse species that you're after. There are different states that are better, but, you know, even, even you know, for rough grouse, you know, the northeast, it, a lot of it, it really comes down to just you being able to spend time in the woods and finding birds in your area and setting your expectations, you know, if it's an area that you know five bird flushes, that's a win for you. Then your expectations should should meet that, and um, you know celebrate those types of hunts. And if you have the chance to go to an area, you know, if that, Patrick, if this is, if this question is for you, and you're saying, man, I want to play on the ultimate grouse hunt, well, then it depends on the species. And if you want to have uh, a rough grouse hunt, and you live, let's say, you live in uh Indiana and you're going to travel somewhere well you know maybe maybe Michigan is the place for you but maybe it's Minnesota maybe it's northern Minnesota and I think you you spend a couple days in any of those forests or in Wisconsin um you know you get into some public lands and you can go and go and go and typically not always typically the more effort you put in the more success you're going to find. And that that is anywhere you hunt grouse or any upland birds in bird country. Kevin Zietzma asks, Planning any more hunts north of the border? If so, what would you do? Well, I've been wanting to do a Hungarian partridge hunt in Canada and Saskatchewan. It's on my list, but it's also on the list of Scott Franzen, and Bill Shirk, uh, I think every one of us kind of has that same desire to get back up there and, and do some hunting. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, we'll be able to do that again soon. If you're an avid outdoor enthusiast like me, then odds are good you have toys and equipment that you need to haul. Aluma Trailers, well, they've got you covered. Their trailers are built by a hardworking team in Bancroft, Iowa, right here in the good old USA. They have models for nearly any and every hauling need, from ATV and UTV trailers to utility, snowmobile, motorcycle, car trailers, and even fully enclosed trailers like mine. Trust me when I say Aluma trailers tow like a dream. They are constructed out of lightweight, strong, corrosion-resistant aluminum, and they are 100% maintenance-free. Plus, they come with an industry-best five-year warranty. Visit alumaklm.com to find a trailer that fits your needs. For everything that gets you outdoors, Aluma Trailers will help you get there. For generations, bird hunters have hit the field carrying some form of a vest or game pouch on their back. Sometimes the vest rip, tear, and fall apart. Other times they're just downright uncomfortable. That's why Chief Upland designed a vest that's durable, comfortable, and fits your needs. Their new Upland vest is fully customizable to fit the size and shape of all hunters. Plus, you decide where you want to attach your shell pouches and accessories. Birds can be front-loaded into the game pouch, and they fit nicely in the back without sagging. That's a big deal because the weight disbursement on your back and shoulders won't tire you out even with a full pouch of birds the vest itself is extremely lightweight weighing only 2.56 pounds the material is built out of cordura fabric which is the same waterproof fabric used in tactical military gear you can confidently hunt with the chief upland vest in some of the world's toughest environments order your chief upland vest now to make sure that you're ready for your next hunt push further and hunt longer with the game-changing vest from chief upland built for your pursuit Tyler O'Brien asks, while solo hunting with a dog, how to pick an area to hunt and different strategies to work an area alone? I always hear working edges, fence rows, and windbreaks. What else should I try? That's a really, really good question. If I had to come back with a limit of birds, like if that was my main objective on a hunt, I personally believe hunting solo is probably the best way to achieve that. If you have your dog and you you know you've done all the training and you go out there a solo hunt allows you to just work slow. <laughs> it there's not an army, all the footprints or not footprints, but you know the birds can feel that. You know if you get in a line and guys are talking, they're yelling at dogs. You know a lot of different commands are going on out there. A lot of birds are flush and wild. I find that a solo hunt allows you to just have that one-on-one with your dog, and you just slowly pick apart the cover and go back, loop around, try it again. And, you know, the fence rows are great, but they're not always the place to be. It depends on the time of day. It depends on the weather. Is it a sunny day? What are you hunting? Pheasants. If you're hunting pheasants on a sunny, beautiful day... You'd be amazed at how few birds are actually in the cover you're hunting and how many of them are in the stubble, in the corn stubble that does not look like much, but they're out in the middle of the field. So then timing becomes a big deal. I have a friend that if it's a sunny, nice day, it doesn't matter if it's 20 degrees outside, there's not much wind, it's sunny. He knows those birds are going to be out in the picked cornfield and they're not in the cover. He waits. He doesn't hunt until the last two hours of the day, the golden hour, when the birds come back to roost. He knows they're going to be back in the cover, and he's not wasting his time, and therefore he is more successful. You know, edges are great. Food sources matter. Pheasants, their life revolves around food, all upland birds, really, cover, and food. So typically when I'm hunting solo, I love to do it, by the way. doesn't happen that often for me, but when I do get out there, I love it, and I'm looking for places that a lot of people probably would not want to go. That's where the birds typically go. <laughs> they they know the cover that gets overlooked. It's maybe uh, a mile away. Uh, it takes a long time to get there. I try to approach those in directions that most hunters, you know, especially on public land. Uh, I try to approach those. Places um, in a direction that most hunters would not want to take, and it changes throughout the year too. You know, when we get cold weather, and you know cattails become in, come into play. Well, there could be there could be islands of cattails that nobody walked through all year because you couldn't get to them. Well, now you got ice. Now you can walk out there. So, strategically planning where you're going to go, uh, looking at properties driving around, watching what the birds are doing. Where do they fly into? Sometimes you get out to a spot an hour before you can legally hunt it and just watch and see what the birds are doing. And you'll learn really quickly where they are and where they are not. Uh, so my strategy when I hunt solo is to hunt quietly, follow my dog, lead my dog towards areas that I think look thick, nasty, ridiculous, and... Um, you know, and it changes throughout the time of the day and the weather and where those birds are on a nasty, cold, snowy day is different than where they might be on a beautiful, calm, sunny day in December, January, depending on what, you know, where you're hunting right now. Um, so I, I, I find the success rate for people that hunt solo for variety of different birds, Seems to go way up. Doesn't always, doesn't always lead to success. Sometimes, you know, you get five dogs out there with three guys. And if you guys are all really guys or gals, I should say, if you're all dialed in and you guys can hunt well together, you know, sometimes the birds don't stand a chance there either. Let's see. Oh, this is a good one. Jack McLaurin asks, I'd like to hear you talk about hunting with non-traditional dogs and dog breeds. Turns out my girlfriend's corgi makes one heck of a flushing bird dog. A good buddy's first bird dog was a rescued healer mix. And there are plenty of kids out there hunting over the family farm dog. I'd love to hear your experiences with mixed breeds, non-traditional breeds, hunting with rescue dogs, whatever. Plus, advice for people forced to hunt and train these dogs would be great. Not all of us can afford a $1,000 puppy. Well, Jack, I do have personal experience with a mixed breed because my dog, Daisy, is a mixed breed, and she has a prey drive that's off the charts. Now, I would say that my mixed breed is a little bit different than the ones you're referring to here because um, I've hunted with my dog's mom and dad, and I've seen their hunting skills, their, their unbelievable drive. Um, and just how amazing of hunters they are. So uh, my dog is an English setter mixed with a German short-haired pointer. I know several, several other people that have mixed breed dogs. I've heard some outfitters, dog trainers say that mixed breeds are the best breeds. Um, but again, I don't think you're referring necessarily to you know when a dang good GSP Breeds with a dang good English Setter, and you end up with a Point Setter like I have. I think you're talking about you know rescue dogs or dogs that you wouldn't think would be a hunter. And I've seen you know like you you mentioned a, a Corgi. Well, I, I I've seen a lot of different dogs that love to hunt, and you know genetics are a big part of a dog's drive to hunt. But there's also something to be said about an oppor- the opportunities that a dog is given. So. Some dog breeds have a nose that smells more than 10,000 times better than the human nose. Um, And so, what they do with that nose or how that excites them, um, you know, they don't have to be, uh, you know, a genetically bred hunting dog to enjoy the smell of a bird and then the fun that can be associated with that. Um, so if, if, if a dog that has never hunted before, let's say it's a rescue dog, you know, you introduce them to the wing or the bird or, you know, take them out into the field. And all of a sudden they smell that cause they're, they're going to smell it regardless of the breed. Their nose is so strong, you know, and you might find, and I've seen, I've seen a lot of different dogs have the light switch turn on. Um, I, uh, the, you talked about the healer. I have a friend of the blue healer that pheasant hunts and that dog just goes crazy over pheasants. Um, you know, people that get a dog that might be a little bit older, a lot of times they say, well, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I think that is complete BS. I really do. And I, and I say that because a lot of people that I trust have told me that. And a dog Is a pack animal. They want to learn. They want to please. And you're able to teach a dog, I believe, at almost any point of their life. So there's no point that's too late to introduce them to something. There's no point that's too late to teach them obedience. And if they have fun flushing a bird, watching you shoot it, and knowing it goes down, and then they put it in their mouth, and they might bring it back, and you can do that multiple times, and all of a sudden... You know, they say, dang, they're a hunting dog and they don't, they may be a breed that was not bred to go hunting, but they, they love it. And I think, I think it's really about committing to taking that dog, but whichever situation you're, you're put into, um, bringing that dog out into the field and taking them with there's, I don't think there's any harm in it. Some dogs are bred. The genetics tell them to point. Others might just have fun running around in the brush and all of a sudden they smell something and they run towards it. And then the bird flushes, you shoot it, it goes down. They see that they run over to it, you know, and, and you might end up with, with a flusher that you didn't think you would ever be able to hunt with. I know my, my father, he, he, he grew up on a farm and, and they had, he called it a mutt, it was a mixed breed, he didn't know which breed it was, but that dog went everywhere with him. When he'd go rabbit and squirrel hunting, coon hunting, that dog became a hunting dog, just by the experiences that he took that dog and and gave that dog. So, um, I think, you know, I, I don't know if I answered that question very well, you know, you said, do you have any experiences? Well, for instance, here, um, uh, um, Dylan Waller, I hunted with Dylan uh, up, in, up in the Colorado Mountains this fall. And Dylan had a beautiful GSP young dog, two year old, and that dog was so well trained. And he also had another rescue dog that was a German short hair pointer that did not have the, um, the, the genetical makeup of a, you know, a, a prime hunting specimen. But he just kept working with that dog. And I think he said it was five years old uh, or maybe six years old. And, and so it was a little bit older dog. But um, he said there were some days this year where that dog just surprised the heck out of him. You know, he's kind of a doofus sometimes, is in his words, but also just became, you know, a, a really good uh, hunter that, you know, he didn't expect. He was, you know, he called it a dog of questionable breeding, but that dog led us up on the mountains, covered so much territory out there. And I trusted the nose on that dog, just like I think we can trust the nose on pretty much all dogs out there. Again, 10,000 times better than the human scent or the human nose. That's, uh, that's incredible. Uh, You know, most dogs aren't perfect, but neither are you and I. All right, Jamie Wallace says, I'm a brand newbie, 58-year-young female hunter in Washington State, teaching myself through podcasts and YouTube. I've loved learning about habitat, structure, wind, veterinary dog equipment. Riley and Chucker hunting has me crazed. I think Riley must be her dog, and Chucker hunting has her crazed. I would love to know more about Washington, Idaho, Oregon, where birds can be slim pickings, as well as how to get connected or involved in volunteering. Thank you. Well, Jamie, um, I think we all would like to know more about where the birds are, and that applies to any part of the country that we live in, um, including Washington, Idaho, and Oregon. Um, <clears throat> and first off, congrats to you for jumping in and uh, climbing those mountains. Chucker hunting is so much fun. It's so rewarding. It's It's just... One of those experiences that, you know, if for somebody on the eastern half of the United States, just to do it once, you know, to experience it one time is worth it. I've done it multiple times, and I can't wait to get back up into the mountains and follow a bird dog. As it pertains to getting involved. So we have birds really all over the country, whether it's quail in the south or woodcock or, you know, Rough grouse in the northeast, or pheasants, or quail in the west, or chucker, ptarmigan. There are birds all over the country, and populations go up and down. There are a lot of groups pheasants forever, quail forever. Uh, You know, in in your neck of the woods out west, you know, there's organizations that really um, care about the chucker, you know, and so. Regardless of where you live, a quick Google search will get you information about local organizations. And sometimes it can be intimidating because you see this organization, there's hundreds of people or you know dozens of people, whatever it might be. Sometimes it's just connecting with one of them. People that are involved in conservation organizations care about the land, they care about the birds, and they probably care about dogs and other people. If they didn't, I don't think they would be a part of that organization. So reaching out to one of them and telling them your story, I think, will open a lot of doors. And then, like I mentioned earlier in this show, walking alongside somebody is so so impactful. Um, so you know, whether it's social media or a lot of lot of chapters, you know, like let's just take Pheasants Forever for instance. You can go on pheasantsforever.org. You can search chapters, find one in your area. There's going to be a contact name for the, uh, whoever's the president of that chapter. You can reach out to them. Somebody that's a president of a chapter cares, and they're going to listen to you, and they're going to give you advice, and that pertains to all the organizations, conservation organizations across America, and I think it will really, really benefit you or anybody else to just reach out, say hello, share your story. Charlene Lambert asks or says, love your podcast. A lot of exclamation points. Thank you, Charlene. Running multiple dogs. I know it's a hot button topic. I didn't see many woodcock in the Northeast this year. That's definitely concerning. I personally would love to hear from folks who run flushers on grouse. Had my first grouse season this year and now I'm hooked. Want to learn everything. Well, Charlie, and I hope you do learn everything, and I hope you never stop learning everything because that's what bird hunting is. That's what we all try to do, and that's what makes it so enjoyable. Um, I am sorry you didn't see a lot of woodcock in the northeast this year. You know, the the migration. It can move. It can fluctuate. Timing, you know, they could have been there five days earlier. You know, it. There's so many variables. I heard from people say it was great. I heard the woodcock migration was down. I heard it was up. A lot of it depends on who had the good day and who had the bad day. And if you hit it right, um, you know. And I've I've even shared messages in the last 24 hours with people in let's say West Virginia, uh, South Carolina, that said they've never seen woodcock hunting so good. So. Boy, that's that's a tough one. It's a migrating bird. Um, but running multiple dogs, multiple dogs—that is definitely a hot button topic. Uh, you know, and there's different reasons for it. And a lot of hunters, you know, their their um, definition of a great hunt is different than mine, than the next person, than the next person. There are people out there that will only hunt their dogs without any other dogs. They don't hunt with any other people. Their dogs are well trained. They know what to do. The dog does not have to worry about someone else's dog going in for the flush. Um, you know, for instance, my personal story. My dog, she's a pointer. Well, you know, I hunt with a lot of people, and I'm always hunting with their dogs. That's part of my job. I'm not going to be able to get away from that, but I also want to be able to hunt with my dog when, I'm out, when, when I can. So, unfortunately, you know, she's still a puppy, and there are times this, this season where my dog was on beautiful points, and I went to go walk in there and flush that bird up, and someone's dog ran in and flushed it instead, and now my dog thinks, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm a flusher. So... That meant a lot more work for me this year to untrain that from my dog's um, vocabulary, or maybe not vocabulary, but I had a, a flushing pointer for a little bit, and there were some people that called me out online that that said you're going to ruin your dog, and I said I might, and that would be terrible, but I do want to treat, I do want to train with my dog, I do want to hunt with my dog, and if you know, if my only goal was to have the best dog in the world, then I probably should not have let her hunt with anybody else's dog this year. But I learned and my dog is still learning and I still believe that she's going to come out of it and be a great bird hunter. I've seen it in there. Uh, We're working together. So not really answering your question. However, I think I think you got everybody needs to ask themselves what they consider a successful hunt. What do they want out of the hunt? Do you want to enjoy time with friends, watch a variety of dogs? You know, then you might be okay with having other dogs in the field at the same time. If your goal is the picture perfect point and you only take the shot if you flushed the birds off of a picture perfect point, that's great too. That's, again, it's up to everybody. Um, one thing that I would suggest, you know, a lot of people that hunt, maybe they hunt with strangers, um, other dogs before the hunt begins, set expectations, say, Hey, here's what, here's where my dog's at. All right. She's still learning. She, she points 90% of the time. Every once in a while, she makes a mistake. She goes in, busts up a covey or, or flushes a bird up before I get there, um, If you're okay with it, if you have the ability to stop your dog when you see mine go on point, I would appreciate that because I want you to go in and myself to go in and flush the bird, not another dog, because I don't want to teach her that right now. There will be a time in your dog's life, you know, I know a lot of guys that run flushers with their pointers. Once they get to that point where their dog is rock solid, will not break, knows its job, and does it every time, then you can introduce that flusher into it and you can have one heck of an awesome team. But I think it, I think it comes down to where are you at with your dog? What are you comfortable with? And what are the people that you're hunting with um, expectations before going out into the field? Talking through it beforehand really, really can make a big difference in the field because when, when things are happening, they happen really quick out there. Oh, and he said, "I would love to hear from folks who run flushers on grouse." Yeah, um, let's see. I'm trying to think. I haven't hunted with a flusher for grouse in a while, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to move on from that one. I apologize, Charlene. Um, I love watching a dog go on point in the field and in the woods, um, and that's why I chose the breed that I did for myself. I know that there are flushers in the grouse woods as well. Um, But I, I can't speak to it, so I'm not going to try. Besides a bird dog, a shotgun, and a good pair of boots, the Onyx Hunt App is one of the most valuable hunting tools that I take into the field every day. I've been talking about the Onyx Hunt App since we started producing this show, and that's simply because I use it on every single hunt. I'm serious every single hunt. Their app tells me everything that I need to know about the lands that I want to hunt and the lands that I can legally hunt on. If you've used it yourself, then you know that the Onyx Hunt app shows your location on planet Earth and clearly lays out the land boundaries. It also tells you information about the type of property you're on, like state land, federal lands, walk-in access properties, etc. It's ideal for scouting before the hunt and during a hunt to help put together the patterns that day. The app also has new features this year that show you the kind of crops that are in fields, which obviously is a big deal for us upland bird hunters. If you hunt grouse in the northwoods, there's a timber cut layer to help you find ideal habitat. If you're planning to hunt North Dakota this year, then there's a very important layer that has been added to the app that lets you know if a property has been posted electronically. These are just a few of the tools Onyx Maps give us, and these maps can even be used in areas without cell coverage. From the palm of your hand, Onyx Maps always help you to know where you stand. If you're like me and you love to hunt, there's a good chance you have a four-legged hunting partner that goes everywhere with you in the field. My dog gives me the best chance at finding birds, which is why I always want to make sure that I'm doing my best to give her food that helps her run at peak performance. I feed Daisy Nutrisource high-performance blends of dog food, which give me the confidence to know that she has all the nutrition that she needs to excel in the field and make it through a rigorous hunting season. Nutrisource dog food comes with their good-for-life system. That includes four key ingredients that work together to support gut health, heart health, and the overall well-being of our dogs. Take it from me and my dog, Daisy. Nutrisource, high-performance dog food, can help you and your dog excel in the field. Find the food that's right for your dog at NutrisourcePetFoods.com. Okay, Uh, love to hear about dog obedience in the field versus the homestead for your hunting dogs. Okay, that's that's actually a really good topic to discuss. So here's what I was told early on from several dog owners. If your dog goes flying through the house, jumping from one couch to the next and runs through stuff, breaking stuff, there's a good chance that dog is going to act the same way in the field. Dog obedience at home has a direct effect on dog obedience in the field. A a well-trained dog can have freedom at home without being a reckless and careless dog. So that's kind of the advice that I was given early on, and I've you know, you know I've, I've kind of seen how that's played out with with other dogs. For, for example, um, here's something that I do with my dog. You know, we're she has all the love that we can possibly pour on her at home. I try to do that in the field as well. but we do have expectations on our dog obedience at home matters just as much as it does in the field. And my goal with that is to just keep a well-trained dog and not let her get real sloppy. So, you know, for an example, when, when a door is opened in our house, my dog Daisy cannot go running right through it, okay? She can run right up to the door, but if she goes running through it, I say, Daisy, here. She has to come back and she waits until I release her. And my kids know this too. My wife knows this too. We all know these simple commands. So her job, if we open the door, she stands there. It's a single tap on the head and we say, okay, now she can go. Same thing when we feed her. We don't allow her to run around and jump up on furniture. But at the same time, we also, you know, when she's, when we say here, you know, she can come up. She can lay down on her lap. My boys, they share a bunk bed, and my my dog lays right on the bed and sleeps next to them every single night. They say, Daisy here, and she jumps right up, and she knows based on the boundaries that we've set at home, what she can and cannot do. I'm not saying that I know everything about my dog. I'm just trying to do my best. She's very well behaved wherever we go because she can't just go flying, running around, doing whatever she wants. And I think, you know, the boundaries that we've set with her, I've heard from other dog trainers say that dogs want to know what they can and can't do. And they're happier when they know what they're doing and what they're allowed to do. And then they're, they're living amongst everybody with it, abiding by the rules. Because again, they're a pack animal. They want to know. Um, so obedience at home definitely translates into the field because your obedience in the field, it's not like that dog has to become something completely different when you go out there. Your dog is just, just knows, Hey, these are the rules and we're going to abide by them. Now, you know, I will say, you know, when we go hunting, I have a pretty strict, not strict, but like, here's what I do when I go hunting. She goes into the kennel. She she gets released by, op, I open it up. I say, okay. She comes out, put the collar on her. We go through the same steps each time. I put the command lead on. I, she hops down from the tailgate. I release her. The hunt begins. This is business. We <laughs> are not playing. She knows, hey, we're going to work right now. It's the same steps every single time. So she knows what we're doing. She knows the game. She knows the process. She can respect it. At the end, back on the command lead back up onto the tailgate, I check her, she goes back into the box. There's times when I take her to the office and she's an office dog with me, she gets to ride shotgun. And, you know, she doesn't, she's got a little bit more freedom than, let's say, a work trip. So I do believe, and I think a lot of dog trainers would agree, that obedience at home uh, makes a big difference uh, to your dog's uh, overall success in the field. Uh, Let's see... When not hunt, John Hyde says, when not hunting, when not hunting public lands, I like those private lands that are managed for more wild birds versus released. Those landowners really have their property dialed in for both land production and wildlife. Also love the hunts where you get more than one species, upland, waterfall interests many. Also cast and blast for early season hunts. Lastly, have some areas, lastly, some areas have mentor programs to get new youth. Hunters into the field. I think John is is just explaining these are things that he likes to see. Uh, so John appreciate that. We'll continue to try to when we go on hunts uh, for the television show. We try to you know mix things up a little bit. If it's let's say Lake Sakakawea, in North Dakota, you can hunt the Army Corps land around around the big giant lake, but you can also catch a pile of walleyes. Hey. We like to hunt, we like to fish, we like to experience a variety of things, and we like to show that variety whenever it's possible, so we're going to continue to do that. And We've also had some people say this is a bird hunting show, not a walleye show. I didn't tune in to watch walleyes. Well, sorry. We, we try to show a variety when that pertains. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Okay. Uh, Joe Griffin says, As an avid bird hunter and avid listener to bird hunting podcasts, One potentially interesting topic would be covering hindrances and difficulties with bird hunting if you live in a populated urban area on the East Coast. Specifically topics such as travel, airline restrictions, traveling with dogs, time, access, equipment, etc. I live in Maryland, used to live in North Dakota, and travel to multiple states per year with different means of travel. I know a lot of podcast listeners in this region who we are losing as a group due to a lot of these issues. This could be beneficial to educate individuals who want to get into bird hunting, are unaware of opportunities locally on the East Coast, and what would be entailed with pursuit of these adventures, let's recruit and educate more bird hunters who are passionate about what we love. Yes, Joe, I agree, let's. I think this is a very important topic that goes a lot deeper than just a simple explanation on how we do that, though. As hunters, I can't stress enough how important it is to include others in your hunts, and the planning process start to finish. Kind of like I talked about earlier in this. It's one thing to invite someone on a hunt and do the work for them by just picking them up and taking them with you in the field. It's another to include them on the entire planning process. I think this pertains to bird hunting on the East Coast, West Coast, and every other part of the country too. Yeah, there are many people that are blessed to live in bird country that can walk out their back door and hunt, but the majority of Americans, the majority of us, Live where birds are scarce and we all need to travel. I personally don't live in amazing bird country. I do have access to wild pheasants within 5 to 10 minutes of my house, but there aren't many. So I try to set my expectations accordingly. And when I bring another hunter along, I try to set their expectations too. We still go through the planning process together and I still try to teach them. My goal is always to make them a self-sufficient hunter and give them an experience that will make them want to come back. If we do get to travel to better bird country, well, then there's even more planning and time to be committed to that, and I try to factor that in with them. For someone looking to get engaged, there are many bird hunting groups online, kind of like I talked about uh, earlier with the previous question. Pheasants Forever, Quill Forever, chapters around the country, uh, other groups, um, conservation groups around. I, I have to imagine every state has some. And again, a quick Google search will lead you to uh, find somebody in your area. And again, my advice would be to try and find one or two people that you can learn from to hunt with and spend a season or two walking alongside. You'll learn a lot just by joining an experienced hunter, and that can set you and others up for a lifetime of success. Ultimately, I really do think we live in a world dominated by family and work commitments, and long-distance travel can be required to find bird hunting success, but one well-planned hunt a lot of travel can really result in one of those hunts that you will remember forever. It's a lot of work sometimes. I get it, but it's worth it. It's worth the planning. I know people that are planning right now. We're in the late parts of January. Hunting season is over for you know certain parts of the country, and I know several people that have been texting me even this week, hey, I'm planning to go here and here next year and here. You know They're working through their plans right now, taking the time, uh, looking to figure out who's going to go with them. And again, I know I mentioned this earlier and I repeat this a lot, if you just take one person with, if we all take one person, we double the amount of hunters in one year. It really can grow that quickly. So it doesn't have to be about taking a lot of people to help them. It just requires a little bit of extra time to bring somebody with through the whole process. Ethan Schmidt asks, if you had one gun to upland hunt with for the whole season, what's your choice? Well, I'm fortunate that I have options and I can switch depending on the birds that I'm hunting or different scenarios, different times of the year. Um, But if I had to choose just one gun for the whole season and I had to use that to hunt for all the different birds that I like to hunt, then I'd probably go with the 16 gauge. Um, That gun that, that gauge has kind of fallen into a sweet spot for me. And I know a lot of other hunters too. Um, I can confidently take down a pheasant yet. I can also hit quail. Um, I have a fronky instinct 16 gauge and I just, I just love it. Um, the sub gauge loads that federal makes right now, uh, really gives me a lot of confidence to take birds down at incredible distances. Um, I will say if, if I'm, if I'm stuck with one gun for a whole season, a lot of emphasis goes to the chokes that I'm using in that gun. They make a big difference. So for instance, if I'm quail hunting and I might be shooting seven, eight, or even nine shot, well, I, I want a bigger pattern because I'm anticipating covey flushes, you know, the covey's holding tighter and, you know, I want a wider pattern. So my choke should change for that scenario and it will be different if I'm hunting pheasants on public land in December in, in North Dakota. They, they've been hunted. They know the game and they're likely going to flush at a further distance. So I want a tighter pattern and my shot is going to be different there too. I'm probably shooting a, a four or a five shot. So the chokes matter for any shotgun in every scenario that you're going to be hunting, um, you know it's hard to go against a twelve gauge. It does everything. Uh, twenty gauge too. I know people that are shooting twenty eight gauges at pheasants in December, um, but I think for me personally, since you asked, I would say if I got stuck with just one gun, it would be the sixteen gauge. It's just an all around sweet gun. In the ammo, the the loads that are made, the Prairie Storms, the different. The different shells that we have access to right now are really, really lethal. Brett, Browse, Brett Bowser asks, "Have you considered having a conservation officer on the show?" Yes, I actually am looking for a conservation officer to join me as a guest. I've been looking for the last couple of weeks. If you know one, please send him or her my way. I'd love to chat and uh, see if they'd be willing to share some of their stories from the field, because I'm pretty sure we'd all get a kick out of hearing some of the stories. So again, if you any of you know a conservation officer, please send them my way. Oh, Dan Larson asks, what are the pros and cons to hunting solo? Well, I, I touched on that earlier. I'm not going to go too far in depth on that. I, I love hunting solo, because I love watching my dog and working with my dog. She's still a puppy. Uh, we're able to quietly work through cover, get real close to birds that potentially would not have held as tight if there was a big army of us walking through. I'm a big fan of hunting solo. I don't get to do it all that often, but I love every chance that I get to do with it. Um, it allows you to just wander. It allows your dog to really uh, hunt and allows you to. Take paths that you may not have taken if there were other people with. So I I think if you have the chance, uh, take it. You you know, maybe you don't have the, the, the best trained dog in the world, and you maybe would have had more success going with a buddy that's just got this rock star pointer or this amazing flusher that just hammers the cattails. Well, that's okay. Go on a solo hunt because you'll learn more about yourself and your dog when you do. Max Watercott asks, what are some things that you would tell a first time puppy owner or trainer that you wish you would have known before getting your first pup? Max. Oh man, that's a hell of a good question. Um, patience, 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 I think is, is so important with our dogs, all of our dogs. Um, I think for me, the first time I got a dog, I was like, all right, We're going to work on training and then we're going to go hunting and she's going to be this amazing dog and she's going to point, she's going to hold the birds. I'm going to flush them. She's going to retrieve them. I mean, it's just going to be perfect. This is what I've seen, all these other dogs. And I just put expectations on my dog that she was unable to live up to right away. And I think really, you know, a a first time puppy owner and trainer, um, I I was told this from a lot of people. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen overnight. Just sticking with it. Sticking with it. Get rid of the expectations. And just celebrate little milestones. Celebrate little wins. And allow your dog to do something awesome. <laughs> celebrate that. But also know that she could go right back or he could go right back to you know, for feeling like you're back at square one, you know, and I've seen it. And people ask me, how's my dog doing? I say, "Tell. depends on the day. Depends on the day. Because sometimes I feel like we're at square one. Sometimes I feel like I've got just an all-star out there in front of me. And um, I think I've, I've learned to accept that, work through those scenarios with her, and help her to become a better dog. Um, and I also would say before I move on, I would also say, you know, the value of a mentor, a good mentor, it cannot be it cannot be overstated. Um, you know, having George Lyle, my 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 bird dog buddy, um, you know, I, I talk to him a lot. I talk through scenarios that have happened and he says, well, here's what you need to do or, you know, just having somebody that you can talk to and explain, here are the mistakes that I've made, or here are some of the things that have happened. What would you do? Or what, what can I do here? Having somebody that you trust to talk to, to work through some of those things, that's huge. So if you know somebody that has great dogs and they've worked with them and they've, they've gone through it and asking them, you know, saying, you know, I'm, I'm new to this. This is something I want to do because I want to, I want to learn with my dog and I want to I want to help this dog become a great hunter. Well, there's more more than likely you're going to find somebody that's excited for you and will give you the best advice that they possibly can. So finding that person can really, really, really benefit you and your dog. All right, we're getting close to the end here. I'm going to wrap this up pretty quick. Uh, Scott Canane, uh, loyal listener, asks or says, "I would like to listen to a podcast where your guests talk about how their time, In the fields has changed since they were younger. What have they learned? How about the dogs and how they've changed over the years? What about the people they choose to hunt with? What makes a great hunting partner? Being mentored and mentoring. I just talked about that. What were their favorite places and birds to chase compared to now? Do they still sleep in the back of a pickup? Or are they now hotel bound? Just think of all the areas of being in the fields and how they've changed since you were a pup yourself. Wow. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of our guests over the years, and I, I hope guests to come, um, you know, we we talk about stories of where, where they started. I know last week, Brett Walton talked about growing up on the farm and a dairy farm, and they'd have, you know, just a short amount of time to be able to go hunt during the day. But the quail hunting back then was great, you know, and a dozen coveys and the four hours between having to milk cows. And you know, just how the journey changes and the dogs that we've had and what, you're, what you believe is a great hunt today might be different than a great hunt tomorrow. And, um, you know, so I'm going to try to keep finding guests that, uh, that are in all different phases of their hunting journey and, and hearing their stories because I think we can all relate to it at some point. What, what I think is a successful hunt, a successful hunt today is probably going to be different tomorrow. And I think that applies to all of us, you know. I I slept in the back of my truck many a times. I don't do it as much anymore. i am fortunate. I've got this beautiful ice castle fish house that has become my bird camp. So rather than sleep in the truck, I do like sleeping out in the prairie uh, because it it changes the the experience. You know, I'm I'm camping out there on the prairie. It's luxurious camping, I will admit, but I'm still camping out there. I can walk out and I can hunt. I. You know, it's like shore lunch for walleyes. When you come back, you can clean a bird right there in the field that you just harvested it, and you can cook it up. And my goodness, is it delicious! It's hard earned. It just everybody from the cameraman to the hunters they love it when we do that. Um, so the journey is is a lot of fun. Um, there are several more questions, but I think. I think I'm going to leave it at that. Mark Enzi says, Enjoying the day without pulling the trigger, watching the dogs, working brush, the countryside has changed a lot. Appreciate today. The next day may not be the same. And Mark, I completely agree. I have seen a lot of lives changed in the last couple of years, and I know that every one of us listening right now to this can probably say the same thing. People that they grew up hunting with might not be there. Opportunities that they once had may be gone. Um, you know, that's why I, I, I talk about this all the time, but just to try to enjoy every opportunity that you get. Um, you know, take your kids with, take your wife with, take your husband with, uh, take your boyfriend or your girlfriend or somebody that's never hunted with and give them that experience that you love so much because it's just not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed tomorrow or the next day. And I'm not trying to get sappy or sad here. I'm just being completely honest that we have a lot of opportunities out there. Uh, Hunting season is still going in different parts of the country. Sometimes it means taking a couple days off work, camping in the back of your truck, driving with your dog into the middle of nowhere. And going on a walk and learning on the go, and there's nothing more rewarding than finding a bird on your own, researching a place, and failing, 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 and then bam, a bird gets up and you take it down and your dog brings it back. And it might just be one, but you drove halfway across the country and you're in the mountains and your dog is on point and it all comes together and you say, that might be the most beautiful hunting moment of my entire life. I sure am glad that I drove eight hours just to experience it. Uh, the, the, the possibilities are out there. I hope that we all choose to take the ones that we get and introduce others to the field. I want to thank you for sending in these questions and these comments. And there are so many more. I'll probably do this again. Um, I'm not sure when, but just keep them coming. Keep them coming. I save your questions. I like to touch on them when the opportunities exist. We have some exciting um, days ahead. We've got Pheasant Fest coming up in a few a few weeks, um, early March. You can go to pheasantfest.org to learn more about that. Um, we're going to do, I believe, uh, a panel podcast, a live podcast where we want you to join us if you're going to be at Pheasant Fest. I'm working out the details right now with Pheasants Forever to figure out which room we will uh, conference room that we're going to have. We're going to pick a time. I'll let you know on this. If you happen to be at the at the show and want to join us, we'd love to meet you. We'd love to have you uh, come up, ask questions. I'm thinking I'm going to have three, four, five—I don't know—a handful of other hosts, podcasters that you might listen to. Um, all in the bird hunting world, we'll all be there. So it'd be fun to to get together, to have you there. Uh, more on that coming up soon. If you stream our shows, you're in luck. Right now, every week, a new episode from our latest season of The Flush Television Show is going up on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, search The Flush TV. You'll find us. Uh, subscribe so you don't miss an upload. I think they happen every Monday is our plan right now. Uh, so you can stream them in their entirety. We hope you enjoy them. There's a variety of shows, wild birds, uh, different places. I mean, we we try to show the reality of bird hunting today, all across the country, for people of different abilities, different dogs. Um, that's that's really what we're about. We hope you enjoy it. We hope you'll join us again next week. I think I think I'm gonna do two podcasts next week. So. Um, we've had, uh, an interesting run the last month here, uh, just with everything going on in this world. Uh, we've missed a week or two, I believe of podcasts, and I don't want that to happen again. So I'm going to try to give you two next week and I hope you'll enjoy each one of them. Thank you again for joining us today. Like I said, we'll be back next week with another episode of the flush podcast. I'm Travis Frank, reminding you all to take the time to introduce someone new to the field.